Good afternoon. The panel are NZ National. We had Verity Johnson and Gary Moore with me this afternoon. Verity in Auckland here, Gary in Ototahi Christchurch. Now, the cost of living crisis continues to bite, even though the latest inflation data shows that prices aren't rising as fast as they once did. And families are still finding it hard to make ends meet, however. In fact... 600,000 New Zealanders every month will have to rely on food charity. With us is New Zealand Food Network CEO Gavin Finlay. Kia ora, Gavin. Uh, Kia ora, good afternoon, Walsh. Those are some incredible figures right there, Gavin. Many listening might be surprised that up to, um, you you know, uh, sorry, 60,000 New Zealanders relying on food charity. It's a lot. Yeah, it's actually it is actually six hundred was oh, um, six hundred thousand. So it is, uh, you know, that's not every day, all day. That's at yeah. some point during the month they cannot put adequate, sufficient, nutritious food on the table for themselves. So they're having to reach out, and and that is uh, a relatively surprising because earlier on in the year um, we done a, another survey. It was one hundred and sixty five percent higher than the, at the start of COVID in terms of the demand for food support. Another 20% on top of that, uh, and, and this is coming straight from you know over 50 of our frontline organisations surveyed. Um, yeah, it's quite sobering, to be honest. And well, you know, 600,000 New Zealanders uh, monthly having to rely, <clears throat> because that, I could imagine, Gavin, that would be a big deal for a whanau to actually make, or, you know, um, parents to actually sit down together and make a call, OK, we can't make ends meet, we don't have the budget for food across the week, we're going to have to go to a local food charity. It's a big call to make. It, it certainly is. And, and again, from the information we've received from the front line, 36% of recipients now have never needed food support before. So, you know, up until now, they've either relied on their family, their whanau, their community, their own resources and savings, all gone. They're now at the stage where, as you say, you know, it's a big call to to go put up your hand and, and say, I, I need imagine. help, yeah. specifically, you know, for food, which is a basic human right. So, uh, you know, to, to, to have to go to someone to say, can you help me with some food today? Uh, big call. All right. Let's bring our panel in. Uh, Verity Johnson. Kia ora, Gavin. Um, I'm curious, because yeah, I agree it's harrowing. It's absolutely harrowing. I'm curious how much you think that corporate greed is responsible for this, because if you look at Countdown's profit at the moment, it's actually at a record high. And, you know, at the end of 2022 in New Zealand, they were making like $4 billion in sales for a half year, and that had actually increased by 1.3% from the last um, sales quarter. So clearly there's a lot of profit being made here from supermarkets. So I want to know from, like, you're on the front lines of this at the coalface, how much do you think this is being fuelled by just naked greed? I, speaking to the individuals concerned, most do understand that, you know, businesses are businesses and they have to, to, to do what they can to survive. I think the reality in terms of the individual is that, you know, a few cents or a couple of dollars here or there across all the food groups may or not may not make a, a massive difference. It can in some cases, but because food is is one cost of twenty, thirty, forty, fifty items that they they try and procure, having and, and absolutely the food price index has 
outstripped both wages and inflation over the last 12 to 18 months. So that is a concern in itself. Um, many factors go into that. Um, you know, it's even if you if the the supermarkets were to drastically reduce, you know, the the margin, it might only be a few cents or or a dollar or so here or there across the entire um, food spectrum. So whilst it is an absolute factor and it is a contributing factor, I, I think there's just so many other areas where the costs are also uh, as high that, that contribute to just tipping a family over the edge. I'd be interested to see if you are one of those families who are in the situation that you're having to you know, uh, reach out to a food charity just because that money doesn't really stretch across the week or the fortnight. Uh, get in touch. It can be anonymous, of course, so 2101 or email the panel at rnz.co.nz. Be interested to hear your story. Uh, Gary Moore. Well, I've, one of the things I always like to look at is what's the root cause of the poverty, which I think you're, um, you're, you're talk, talking about before, Gavin. But, you know, if you look at, at, at how our economy is structured where people are on low wages for different hours in different jobs, um, and that's one thing, the low income. But the but the other thing is greed by landlords. You know, the greater number of New Zealand or the huge number of New Zealanders who are now renting and landlords continuously putting up their rent and it's going to get worse under this government because they've actually got all sorts of incentives to actually speculate and buy more and more and more properties and we are, as a country, going to have more than 600,000 people a month relying on food. Cheers. Well, here's... Uh, yeah, sorry, I was, Peter, just, sorry just Gavin. Gavin, yeah. Gavin, yeah, go. Yeah, um, I mean, absolutely, uh, housing costs are a, probably the single largest contributor to mm. um, the lack of uh, disposable income up, up, up above housing. That's, um, again, symptomatic of our of our wider housing pricing issue um, that any any landlord buys a house for quite <laughs> quite high value the price the, the the rental goes up you know food food insecurity is not a disease on its own it's a symptom of many other things and I certainly do in speaking to a front line who speak to families you know is someone who's earning minimum wage forty hours a week you know three quarters at least of that money is going on household uh, income costs or household costs. That's just not sustainable for anybody to live. And, you you, you know, the, the overall uh, ability to service and help your family across the needs is just so hampered by the high cost of housing. Yeah, um, here's one. I have two families I know of closely, one from my extended and a friend of a friend. Both use the food banks regularly. Uh, I personally live alone, and today I thought I would go to a food bank next week just for butter and vegetables and fruit so I can get my teeth looked at. Uh, and wow. that's, that, that, that's an example, isn't it, uh, Gavin? You know, you, if, you, if you want to spend, say... Um, $200 on a hygiene, you can't stretch to that, but you need it done. So that's where a, f- a food charity service comes in. Absolutely. I mean, again, from the survey, um, unexpected bills of expenses. Right. You know, it was over, over 50% were, uh, of, of respondents were, 
were saying that that was one of the reasons. It was the third main reason for um, for seeking food support. You know, a car breaks down. You know, you you have to buy some new tyres, or do you run the risk of not having a roadworthy car on the road and you get stopped and you get fined? And it's just a perpetual mm. cycle where, I mean, making a having to make a choice between one bill and food. That's really not a great societal, uh, you know, position to be in. Yeah, another one here. I'm on a benefit, so in order to survive, my hot water was turned off uh, during winter, um, so I can eat uh, three times a week. Finally, on this, Gavin, what are you hoping for with the incoming government? Um, well, we 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 engage with all parties uh, in in the run up just to uh, appraise them of the situation and to understand uh, the value that you know we as an organisation and the wider food support network actually do do give. And you know, to their credit, virtually all, including the incoming government, you know, stated if you are providing good outcomes, we will provide you with support. And I, you know, I would. Hit Jason, to say that from a value perspective in terms of the food put back into the community, uh, ourselves and our network are providing extraordinary value um, for, you know, we we can't do without food, air and water. And, you know, you need need food to survive. So I hope they hear us. Um, I hope they continue to to support us. And, And we're doing our bit as well. We've just launched a pitch in campaign to get businesses uh, across the motu and people who can help to pitch in to purchase food to put back into the community. Uh, we mm-hmm. only have limited resources that, that we have uh, to be able to, to do what we can. We're funded to a certain amount. So we're looking to continually doing that, create value and support where we need. Gavin, Kira, nice to have you on the programme. That uh, yeah, a very important topic there, isn't it? Uh, uh, Gavin is the CEO of the New Zealand Food Network, uh, up to 600,000 New Zealanders every month having to rely on food charity, RU1. Text me, 2101. The panel, we have Gary Moore and Verity Johnson today. Now, um, good news doesn't often make the headlines, but this next story could possibly go in the good news basket, but it's something that's largely been overlooked, and that is that New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions are overall... On the way down, annual emissions for, uh, for the burning of fossil fuels are the lowest in 24 years. The 12-month renewable share of electricity is back above 90% for the first time since 1981. Stats NZ did say today that emissions were up 0.1% in the March quarter, 0.2% in the June quarter, but uh, overall... Will the trend keep tracking down? With us is Robert McLaughlin, a professor in applied mathematics and wrote a fairly extensive piece on this in the conversation. Professor McLaughlin, welcome. Kia Wallace. Well, actually, many might well have missed that memo. I mean, albeit that uptick that we've uh, talked about it today from StatsNZ. But overall, New Zealand's grass, greenhouse gas emissions tracking down. Yeah, it, it, it's not uh, that common to have a good news climate story, but this is definitely one. Um, yeah, lowest uh, emissions in some decades from fossil fuels. What are the key reasons? Well, it's quite hard to unpack that. Uh, there are lots of things happening yeah. at once. Right. So the government policy is, uh, 
definitely one of them. So there was uh, there were high prices in the emissions trading scheme. We had the clean car discount, uh, more EVs and hybrids, uh, and there was some direct government funding for decarbonising industry. Uh, but but then there were non-government things as well. So, uh, for example, in the last year, it was particularly wet, and that was particularly good for hydro electricity generation. So it's a whole range of factors. Yeah, it's many and varied, but nonetheless, uh, Gary Moore, uh, look, I, I, I profess... I, Professor, say that I didn't really know this, that overall tracking down, but uh, interesting stuff, Gary Moore. Yes, I, I went away and talked to a, yet another professor um, who did talk about the dam levels um, are up because of rain and less coal burning. Um, another one he said was economic downturn could uh, could be attributable, and also more people working from home, so... Mm. Um, you know, fewer use of fuel. But he also pointed out that there's been quite a lot of scientific progress on uh, a build-up of knowledge on uh, greenhouse methane gases, um, the, you know, the animals burping and farting less. And um, uh, he said there's huge progress in that area uh, with different types of stock as well. And so his his comment was... Um, it's not necessary to rely just on the emissions trading scheme. Um, and I, I spoke to another scientist who, who talked about they, they're not convinced that the EV sales is a significant player in this. Um, and, uh, yes, it, it is quite interesting. But one of the things that I say as a non-scientist is that the science community needs to actually teach us what can we do personally. And I, that's something I've I've I really struggled to get my head around. You want to respond to that, Robert? Yeah, that's a good point because we do have to do personal things. But unfortunately, with climate, it's a it's really a collective responsibility. Mm. So I think more than just the government policy, this down to re- reduction in emissions is kind of like a mood through the whole country. More people and more companies are realising that they do need to make some action on that, and uh, we just need to keep pressing on that. Well, also, I mean, technically, um, I've been, I, I was fascinated by this because we've been reading about what New Zealanders think impacts climate change and what actually does impact climate change. And on a personal level, um, apparently we think that recycling is really impactful, but actually the thing that would be more impactful is public transport usage. Mm. So we're hugely misinformed. Mm. Robert? Is yes, fair? well, there was, a sad, there was a sad moment in the election ca- debates where the, the leaders were asked what they had done personally, and they both said recycling, <laughs> and every climate re- policy researcher in the country died a little bit inside. Um, Robert, I'm curious as well. When I read your piece, I thought what actually emerged from it was a tone of foreboding because what you basically said was that there's been great reductions, but that's come largely from a government who have been funding a lot of this, you know, so like the clean energy fund, the clean car fund and the decarbonising industry stuff. But you raised the point that National Plan to Cut, was it? Two billion from the current fund that they were going to cut from uh, the current uh, measures for was climate change and put that money towards tax cuts, which actually mm. you know isn't like you said in the article. There's no evidence that people, when they get tax cuts, spend that money on decarbonising their lives. So, given that all this progress has actually come from large scale government initiative, how optimistic are you about this government and continuing this downward trend? Well, uh, <laughs> there will be a big change of direction. Uh, 
and, and all of those things you've listed uh, may go, but some new things will come in. So the National Party's policy is to let the emissions trading scheme do most of the work in meeting the carbon budgets, which could mean higher carbon prices. Uh, and I actually wrote a paper saying that that would not be a popular thing to do because that will hit people in the pocket. Uh, so I was proved wrong in the election, and we'll just have to see how that plays out. Here's is a that because most people yeah. don't understand that? <laughs> That's right. It's mm, very complicated yes. and controversial. Uh, but people will see the, um, you know, the price of petrol, for example. Ah, what would you say to this, Professor McLaughlin? Here's the text. OK, Wallace, so New Zealand's greenhouse gases emissions are down overall. Let's break out the champagne. Of course, this will not have the slightest effect on the world's climate. New Zealand is simply too small to matter. But hey, we're talking about a cult here, so reason and logic have nothing to do with it, do they? What would you say to that text? Well, I can guess where that person's coming from. Uh, so the, we're currently in the beginning of a process called the Global Stock Take, where all the countries that are in the Paris Agreement uh, will um, have their, their progress examined and it'll be added up to see if it's enough to meet the, the targets of the Paris Agreement. And if it's not, uh, they'll all be asked to do more. So we'll just have to see how that plays out. Uh, there's definitely been some progress uh, in the five or six years since the Paris Agreement was signed, but but not enough. I, I find that whole argument that we're too small, therefore yeah. we don't need to do anything, is just rubbish. Mm-hmm. We, we need to actually, you know, we are part of the world, you know, and, and I feel exactly the same about immigration, actually. You know, why should we take people? We, we need to be involved in the world and, and we need to do our bit and this... Oh, don't get me going on. It. Don't Absolutely, get your yeah. stuff. <laughs> well, it's just, it's just like in an election. Uh, one vote doesn't make a difference, but uh, all the votes together do make yeah. a difference. Oh, so. Good yeah. analogy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> all right. <laughs> professor McLaughlin, thank you. That's uh, Robin McLaughlin, who's a professor in applied maths, wrote quite an extensive piece on, um, uh, we might put it in the good news basket perhaps, that overall uh, New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions are on the way down. Um, but one uh, thing, Wallace, I think yes. is really important. What do they say? One swallow a spring doth not make, isn't that what the old mm. saying is? Yeah. Um, I think it's got to, we've got to look at these things long term. And I think, for instance, uh, giving people tax relief may not necessarily um, uh, reduce our carbon emissions because giving people some more money may be that they drive their car further rather than looking properly at public transport, Yeah, All right. which is what Verity said. 27 past for the panel. Now, I am, I'm just going to come back to your I've been thinking, both of you, because both of you had uh, actually quite a lot of feedback on it. Um, I just want to applaud Gary Moore for his forthright, eloquent summing up of the political situation in New Zealand. Well said, says a, uh, a doctor who emailed us. Another one, I want to say to Gary, what a wonderful speech, wholeheartedly agree. We needed a vision, and the main parties missed the opportunity to present one. Here's another one, Gary, great idea. I think a grand coalition would work, as it does in Switzerland, mm. the Purple People's Party, and I would vote for that. So do you think we missed a trick there uh, somehow, Gary? I don't know. One of the things that I think could happen first, I, I'm not sure, and you said at the start that I'm such a South Island bigot. Advocate. But I think, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. 
Um, <laughs> interchangeable but, words, interchangeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do feel that there's the possibility of a mainland party which could bring Ooh, left and right separatist together. Separatist movement. Down here, down here, we are tribal. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Naitahu or you're talking about, you know, a Pākehā like me. We're tribal. And I actually think that could be a very interesting How about that? Uh. Boom. Got to come back to that on the panel. <laughs> Is it time for a mainland party? Uh, very interesting, Gary. And on Verity's, uh, I've been thinking, goodness gracious. <laughs> we kick something off. <laughs> uh, he, you have you what? You basically said that um, New Zealand men, we quite to say that New Zealand men were the worst lovers in the world. I didn't say um, that. I reported said, on that. Well, I'm 66. Well, you spread it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I commentated on this, yes. Um, uh, New Zealand men are the worst lovers. I haven't been with a lot of men, but they have all all been intentionally varied. New Zealand men only have their own agenda in mind when it comes to lovemaking. Um, Lawrence says, I'm 66 and I have a new Italian partner in the past three years. Now, what have I learned? We're so much better when we're vocal, which Kiwis are not taught to be. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, uh, someone says, Kia ora, Wallace, I'm a Pākehā male and I'm not the world's worst lover. Thank you very much. Who the heck does Verity Johnson think she is? Kakite from an outraged New Zealander. So people are quite outraged at you for saying, for daring Good to on assert you. on the panel on on nationwide radio that you think that New Zealand men are bad lovers. Listen, all I'm going to say is that I'm right and I have done my research on this and I'm not the person who said this. I didn't do the stats all right. I didn't go around the world getting everyone to be ranking the men, but they did the research and I'm telling you the research and I'm saying that New Zealand men rank globally a 4 it's, out of 10. It's quite a confronting thing. Oh, four four, it's out 4 of out of 10. 10, yes. That's not Yet, fair. No, it's stats, <laughs> it's numbers, it's 4 out of 10. Women oh, rank 6 out of 10. Oh, numbers must be right. Yeah. Must be I'm right. sorry, look, look it up. I, look, I wrote a stuff called about this two weeks ago. Go and read it. Um, did you get quite a response from your stuff, Colin? I did, yes. <laughs> a lot of people telling me. Um, you know what was really funny? The women all agreed with me and the men were all outraged, although that's, you know, really? not, not super surprising. Yeah, I mean, I'm also just going to say that, like, <laughs> I'm not saying I personally agree with this, but, like, I understand, like, one of the main comments, my, one of the reasons men ranked lowly was that everyone said that men were too passive. That passive was the word that kept coming up, that Kiwis were passive. And I understand that as a nation, we are shy and more gentle and that, you know, globally, that doesn't necessarily translate. Very so. interesting. Yeah. Uh, oh, here's a lovely one for both of you. Gary and Verity are my new favourite panellists. How about that? <laughs> lovely. <laughs>